Hello, everyone. Welcome to Room Roundup. Hey, Artie. Hey, Jack. Uh, man, what a, another year, another uh, rheumatology meeting, another rheumatology roundup. So welcome to Room Now's Rheumatology Roundup, a live session that's presenting highlights of the 2022 annual meeting of the American College of Rheumatology, the Convergence, uh, which sounds like sort of a thing with witches and stuff, but uh, it was held in Philadelphia. I'm Marty Cavanaugh from San Diego. And I'm Jack Cush in Dallas, Texas with Room Now. Uh, we're home. We're post-conference. We're recovering from the grind of uh, uh, a really heavy three days of finding all the good stuff. In this roundup, we're going to discuss the abstracts and presentations of interest from this year's meeting. Please note the abstracts were chosen without any influence from anyone and really chosen based on really the stuff that we like, things that we think are innovative, things that we think will affect how we practice, how you practice. This is a live recorded session that represents our uncensored views. Reproduction of this award-winning broadcast is gonna be harmful to your longevity, but please do tell your folks about looking at this. We're gonna have it online. Uh, Artie, start us off. Well, the I think for the people who did not attend or attended one way or the other, it was a, a hybrid meeting. So there were live activities. Uh, there were some things that were, many things were remote, not all of them. Some things were just remote. Uh, I think the ACR, to their credit, they tried some new things. And uh, hopefully, to their credit, they learned how bad some of those new things were. So, uh, well, let's talk about the what's always the most fascinating part, the most important part of the meeting, and that is the uh, individual abstract. So I'm going to start us off with an abstract number 1044, and this is combined biologic DMARDs or targeted therapies in SPA. So this was kind of a what I did last summer experience, as uh, Jack and I like to call it, and uh, what they found is in a group of centers um, in Spain, they put together their experience treating people with SPA uh, with combination biologic and targeted therapy. So they had 29 patients who got uh, 31 different regimens. Uh, all the patients had SPA. A good number of them had IBD. And I think that makes sense because that's uh, where we see the potential use of this. And they had a, a, a number of combinations. The most common was used to Kinemab plus a TNF inhibitor. Second most common was secukinumab plus a TNF inhibitor, and then a variety of others, including a couple that were on uh, uh, jacinib. So overall, they took people who were very refractory, and they got about a third of them into remission, a third of them into low disease activity, and a third of them still had appreciable disease activity. Now, they did have two serious adverse events among the 31 treatment courses, 29 patients. They had a, a pulmonary infiltrate that was called non-infectious and staph bacteremia. So you say, well, why would I, why would I pick this poster? It's only 31 uh, patients, which is slightly just above the number of authors on the abstract. But uh, I think this points out, especially maybe to our younger folks, who don't know or don't remember the history of combination biologic therapy. So 
thinking back, this was an idea that made so much sense um, back in the day, because in animal models, if you have combination biologics, you get better efficacy with less toxicity. This was tried in uh, rheumatology. This was tried in the, the late 90s. And there were two incredibly negative studies, one with the Tanercept and the IL-1 inhibitor Anakinra, one with uh, Abitasa plus uh, TNF inhibitor. In both cases, there were more serious infections uh, and minimal toxicity, or, I mean, minimal efficacy, excuse me. So it didn't work. It it failed miserably, which led to the fact that we don't really haven't tried this. Lately, we're seeing people sort of sneak in, kind of dip their toe into this, if you will. Our colleagues in GI and IBD particularly are a bit ahead of us. And if you look, there are a number of anecdotal reports very much like this poster. And then finally, a study which was presented at the uh, um, presented the European uh, ECHO meeting called VEGA, V-E-G-A, which showed that gazelkumab and galimumab were, uh, at, had additional benefit and they didn't have additional toxicity. So I think this poster is sort of maybe the start of an idea that maybe we can think about using combination therapy. And I think one of the things that highlights about this meeting, Jack, is that um, this is why you want a poster session and a poster board and the author standing in front of us. So you go up to them and you say, hey, you know what? I had two patients with this. And this is how we all learn from each other and how ideas get fleshed out. So having this just as an online thing was it's important information. But I sure wish that there was a poster that I could have gone up to and, and talked to the authors about this. So um, first off, you wrote about this back in April during our psoriatic arthritis campaign. You wrote an article about that, but it's got a lot of reads, um, maybe the most in a long time on Room Now. And um, and it tells you that this is a, a, a popular subject with rooms because we're sometimes forced into this. And especially in yeah. psoriatic arthritis, especially when it comes to using a primalast with other drugs, either adding other drugs on top of a primalast or one of those. And, and again, it's not approved. And is it safe? Or does it work? These are all unanswered questions, but there's a fair amount of this going on. So it's good to see clinical, one, this kind of report, but then like I say in GI, um, to see this subjected to a well-designed clinical trial, I think this is what we need. Uh, and, and yeah, we were around for that, the IL-1 TNF combined story. I was always impressed by that, not so much by the, the safety concern, because it went from like 3% serious infection events to six, which yes, it's more, but would that, that have been reasonable if there was a lot of efficacy? Unfortunately, there was no efficacy, so it was a done deal. But we do need to see more of this and maybe not just in PSA and ankylosing spondylitis. Yeah, I think it's not a question of, will we see combo? I think we will. Um, it's a question of which combo is going to be safe and have additional efficacy. Of course, there's always the cost considerations in practical life, but I think, uh, you know, for, for patients with very refractory disease where you're almost out of everything in rheumatoid arthritis, we're, we're talking more and more about difficult to treat rheumatoid arthritis. I think we, we have to rethink this idea and we have so many different therapies now back. Remember back when it was TNF and IL-1, that was kind of all we had was TNF and IL-1. Uh, but now we have so many more that maybe we will find an effective combination biologic. Yeah. So my abstract is going to be uh, 533. This is um, about the finding of uh, sputum antibodies, autoantibodies that might predict the development of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, researchers at the University of Colorado, Denver, 
uh, initially led by Mike Hallworth, then Kevin Dean, and the author of this paper is uh, Wilson. Um, they uh, have been studying this issue for quite some time. Hallworth and colleagues a number of years ago uh, did um, assessment of first degree relatives and, um, and found that uh, they had CCP antibodies in lung fluid. Um, they found that patients who were CCP positive with um, um, lung, uh, CCP positive first degree relatives had more subclinical lung inflammation, suggesting there's something brewing in the lung uh, in these uh, people at risk of developing RA. And so this particular study is an extension of that, so to speak. So they're looking to see if you can find antibodies in the sputum, maybe re also reflecting antibodies that may be in the lung um, alveoli. And they did this study in um, only patient people who were CCV positive. They did not have joint pain or have to have joint pain. They did not have, certainly did not have inflammatory arthritis. And, and they basically induced sputum on them and they looked at um, autoantibodies against uh, IgA, IgM, Ig, uh, uh, G, uh, CCP uh, autoantibodies, and then follow the patients for years. What they found is that over time of the 66 patients, a third of them developed RA, and you were way more likely to develop RA if you had these sputum autoantibodies. It was like 67% if you were spit positive and 20% if you were spit negative, um, and making a sensitivity two-thirds and specificity 80%. So again, uh, this was kind of interesting. Having antibodies in the sputum increased the odds ratio of getting RA somewhere around three, three to five, um, and that was significant. Um, this is not commercial, but and this is a pilot study like their other one in the lung, but it's interesting. Yeah, I think this is, if there is a topic, and I'll follow up on this right after, uh, if there was a theme topic at this meeting, certainly uh, pre-RA, early RA, clinically suspect arthralgia, that really got a, a very nice airing at this meeting. And this was sort of uh, out of the blue. And at, at first, it, you can't help but smile at the idea of a spit test. Uh, and you wonder, I mean, how quantitative is that? You're inducing the sputum. Can you measure quantities? It's, you know, it's an ultrafiltrate in some ways. And so what is the quantification going to uh, do? But the data are the data and they actually look good. And as you said, it really makes sense if you think of the whole picture with the uh, microbiome, the microbiome in the mouth and in the lungs, and both of those might be reflected. And, you know, is this, is this something that we're going to see more in people with gingivitis or more with, with smokers? Uh, and it's one thing about it, it seems like an easy enough sort of test. You know, nobody, I think if you say, would you rather give me some blood or let me take some spit? I think we know what all our patients would vote for, for that. Stand back. Here it comes. <laughs> well, let me continue that theme then. Um, as I said, there are so many things on early RA or clinically suspect arthralgia. Um, just to give a, a, a sampling of some of them, the ARIA uh, abstract 530 was presented at ULAR, but was presented again here. Basically, six months treatment with abatacept had a benefit in clinically suspect arthralgia. When you stopped it, the curves of who developed arthritis sort of came together, suggesting you didn't have a very prolonged effect in everyone, but maybe you did have a little bit of a benefit. And this at meeting, they showed the, the MRI data, which also suggested that there was a difference 
even 18 months. So a year after the treatment with abatacept, you still had a benefit. Um, the TREAT earlier study was presented here. That's uh, our, our presentation 0070 was at ULAR and was presented here as well. Um, this is uh, methotrexate in clinically suspect arthrology. It's actually been published already this summer. Um, an abstract that I actually really liked was 266. And that was the cytokine profile from clinically suspect arthralgia to the actual development of uh, arthritis, and they didn't find a difference. And a take-home point from that, looking at a variety of, it was uh, expression, so it was proteomics of cytokines and chemokines. Um, the, a take-home message from that might be that it's you're not treating early enough, that by the time you're looking at clinically suspect arthralgia, the immunologic process is already ticking. Uh, and that was maybe a message in 535 as well, where in people before they developed RA, they saw an increase in infections. Um, and as that's interesting, is it a chicken and egg thing? Did the infection set off the RA? Did the RA increase the susceptibility of infection? But the abstract I think that we've all been waiting for for a long time was 1604. And this is the STOP RA study. This is also from the same group. Kevin Dean presented this and Kevin Dean did a, a symposium at which this was presented. Um, they also did a great debate uh, where, where Kevin and Mike Holers debated uh, the Hani the El-Gabalaway and Janet Pope from Canada, who came across like Terrence and Philip uh, on South Park a little bit, but uh, no, they did great. Um, and anyway, what they did here was they took uh, people who had a high level CCP3 antibodies, that's their thing, they focused a lot on that and they treated them with placebo or plaquenil and they followed them. Then they treated with for a year and followed them over two more years. Bottom line, nothing. They did not, there, there is just no difference at all between the two groups in terms of the development of uh, inflammatory arthritis, development of rheumatoid arthritis. So about 35% of people in each group develop rheumatoid arthritis over the three years of follow-up, not a lick of difference between the two groups. Safety was good. And that's why you pick hydroxychloroquine because overall it's a, it's a very safe drug. Um, this is going to lend itself to much reanalysis because there were some differences in who got in the study. Some had arthralgias, some didn't, but it's it's negative. If you were hoping that you're going to start treating and everybody comes in who has a positive CCP with hydroxychloroquine, uh, you can, but it's not going to prevent RA. So I, I think it was a, a bit of a surprise to some people. Yeah, I think that, you know, when we were at, at ULAR and, and looked at some of this data, I think some people looked at the ARIA study with avatasib and said, well, gee, maybe it might might actually work. But then the critics of that said, well, they look like they almost have RA. I mean, they had symptoms for 300 to 600 days, you know, and like, even though they didn't have swollen joints, like, what's that all about? And then treat earlier didn't work as primary endpoint developing RA, but it worked in all the RA parameters and symptoms. Like, so some people were giving that some buzz. And we were waiting on the stop RA, which is a negative trial. I think the smartest thing I heard uh, came from you uh, in discussions we were having about this. It said, the closer you are to RA, the more likely it makes sense to use one of these drugs, you know, whether it's methotrexate or, or abatacept, and I don't know about hydroxychloroquine, but it just makes sense. But if, you know, if it's really remote, it's just a CCP, chance of developing RA, RA alone, with just CCP alone is maybe 20% if you're, if you're lucky, but it, once you add on symptoms, you know, arthralgia is no synovitis, positive 
you know, ultrasound tenosynovitis or MR inflammation and first degree relative smoking, double positive, you know, then you start getting where, okay, I probably should treat you even though you don't have swollen joints. But so far, these, these studies have made it difficult for the rheumatologist to know what to do next in these patients. Yeah, it's funny. And when you talk to people, some people will say, arthralgia plus CCP, I treat them. Um, but the data have not been incredibly promising. And I think you have to have the realization that you're going to treat people uh, that a number of whom were never going to develop the disease you're preventing. Uh, and so I, I, I really hope for the for positive results from hydroxychloroquine study because it's such an easy drug to say because it has such a good safety profile. But on these data so far, you really couldn't sell it. No, and when they say I'm going to treat them, the things you use, hydroxychloroquine, failed to stop RA. Methotrexate failed in prompt and failed in treat earlier. You know, right now we're just waiting for the results of the Epipra study, a much larger control trial, uh, also using abatacept. So let's wait and see what that shows. Maybe we'll sing a different song uh, after next ACR. My next abstract is 2251, um, reduction in RAILD, possibly by a JAK inhibitor. So as you know, uh, the development of ILD in RA patients is, is bad news. I mean, it's seen at least clinically in up to 10% of patients, and those people have poor survival. There's an abstract here, 1647, about mortality being increased in RA patients who had ILD. That was from a VA data set, and it was higher than just having RA as far as overall mortality. But in this study, they, they actually looked at um, the Optum uh, Insurance Claims Database. And this is sort of a, so therefore it's a, it's a retrospective study. To get into the study, they, they looked at adult RAs who were going to be um, uh, enrolled for greater than a year and who started either a biologic or targeted synthetic DMARD. Overall, they had almost 30,000 patients, 56 years of age, mostly female. They were enrolled with, you know, tens of thousands, 5,000, whatever, with adalimumab, abatacep, rituximab, um, tocilizumab, and uh, tofacitinib. And when you looked at the development of RA-related ILD, um, the incidence rates for each of those drugs was, you know, three, four, five, six per 1,000 patient years, except for TOFA, which was 1.47. And then when you look at it uh, on a, on, on a um, forest plot, you can see that the hazard ratio is significantly reduced if you compare it to really adalimumab or any one of the other biologics or their average, it was reduced almost 70% um, if you were on tofacitinib. They did another analysis where they chose their data set looking at new user only um, cohorts. And again, when they did the analysis, same results comparing tofacitinib to adalimumab, the risk of developing future ILD was reduced 67%. So the question is, is this real? Or is this fishing for a p-value? Are we, and then if it is real, how are we going to explain it? I mean, I think the best way to explain this is going to be, can we say that tofacitinib is better at microvascular RA? Because I think, you know, fibrotic lung disease is largely driven by tissue anoxia from microvascular disease. And that's certainly what happens with scleroderma, maybe in other autoimmune disease. Does it happen in RA? But we have different, sort of different pathologies on ILD between RA and scleroderma. So what do you think of this date, Artie? Yeah, it's interesting, that's for sure. Uh, if uh, e e they would not appear to be a, a 
uh, bias uh, that you'd say would explain that because um, it's not, uh, I think, you know, you, you may say that, well, we, we think a priori that maybe rituximab should be better. Would we have people go toward that? But it wasn't so different from the ABBA and the TOSI. And yet the TOFA uh, did stand out. I think a couple of things, the confidence intervals do overlap. So you, uh, you know, we need to be uh, uh, cognizant of that. Um, but I think it's it certainly interesting that the jackanibs could have this role. I think we, we always think about that when we have people certainly have clinical ILD, uh, definitely an important issue. As you said, we've had abstracts for the past couple of meetings that have shown that uh, it's all kinds of bad to have ILD. And I think we know the safety profile of the Jack and Ibs, uh really well at this point. So um, this may be, uh, you know, something that if someone does have ILD, it kind of puts you puts you that way, puts you toward that way. So um, it, very interesting, very intriguing. All right. So uh, for me, the next abstract um, I want to do is uh, 420. And uh, the uh, abstract, uh, I think this one is is uh, just fascinating. Um, you know, I think many of us we have internal medicine residents come through, and uh, you realize a lot of what we teach is is uh, urban legend. You know, uh, and that includes things about physical exam, like the Tenel sign and the Phelan sign, which are about uh, likelihood ratio of about one there. It's like flipping a coin 50, 50, uh, examining the SI joint. Uh, and there are things that we teach such as, uh, a good response to non-steroidal points you toward the diagnosis of ankylosing spondylitis. So this study actually tried to address it. And I don't remember, maybe, you know, is that if this has been done before, but, um, if not, why haven't we done this before? So what they did is to get people who really had uh, axial spa, non-radiographic axial spa, and radiographic axial spa, then got uh, 107 people with degenerative back pain, which uh, you, you walk into the clinic and they'll take you three minutes to get people with degenerative back pain, and 58 people with nonspecific back pain. Um, back Inflammatory back pain is actually relatively common. Um, but most importantly, the patients who had a, a improvement with non not that big an improvement, just greater than two on a scale of 10, which is uh, generally for pain studies, for dental pain and stuff, um, they like a response of four or more to really say that there's good pain relief. So this is a, a modest response, um, but it was only achieved by about 30% of the people, and there was no difference uh, among the groups, no difference between the degenerative back pain, non-radiographic axial spa, radiographic axial spa, um, non-specific pain. Uh, the curves sort of over, they wobbled a little bit, but they, uh, they overlapped each other. So um, the people with actual XPA who had an elevated CRP, did not do as well even. So uh, I think we have to stop teaching this because that was just folklore that the people with inflammatory uh, etiologies for their back pain respond better to non-steroidals and that's useful enough to bring into your diagnostic 
uh, assessment uh, doesn't seem to be true. Yeah, I think the good news here is that the people who are a little bit surprised by this are likely to be um, uh, 45 to 65 years of age because um, the, the, the new generation of rheumatologists are not aware of all that non-steroidal literature and all those that folklore as you as you suggest um so this would be like well and and frankly i think if you look in my uh, in my clinics that I, I attend um i notice that most of the fellows and young rheumatologists use very little non-steroidals you know they're they're really leaning more on on dmars biologic therapy physical therapy whatever especially when it comes to mechanical degenerative and axial pain so um this probably won't won't resonate with them as much yeah, you know, I think that's in a way that's sort of a shame. Having you know grown up in the era when all we had was non-steroidals, at least you knew of all of them. Um, I think if you ask many youngins now to name how many non-steroidals they could name, well, everybody's going to get ibuprofen and naproxen. Um, you probably get like a few others, but I still think that they're a very useful adjunct to people, though. These data say, don't be thinking that they have AS just because they said they did great to non-steroidals or vice versa. Definitely don't think they don't have ankylosing spondylitis just because they didn't have a very significant response to this. But I still think, I think non-steroidals are still important. I think we've sort of shied away from them. Remember, uh, you know, the ACR meeting many moons ago, there'd be the, the biggest booths were from the latest non-steroidal. And now, was there was there a single booth or mention of a non-steroidal at any booth? It's sort of become you know passe. But how many how many patients take them? I'd say 50, 60, 70, 80 percent of patients with inflammatory arthritis take them at some point. And um, I like I tell the the you know I, the the people and the patients it's an outcome measure. If you say I'm doing okay, but you're taking 16 Advil a day, you're not doing okay. If you say you're doing okay and you take two Advil a week, you're doing fine. And you maybe even try more rather than complaining, you know, try a little bit more of them. Um, so uh, I like non-steroidals, but this was, this was a bit of an eye-opener. Well, if you like non-steroidals, you're showing your age. I, although I did go by the Nalfon and Selectin booths, they were in a, in a closet next to the bathroom, the, the sharing <laughs> space. Um, yeah, tell, <laughs> do that to one of your fellows. Say, yeah, put them on Nalfon and walk away. They'll, They'll just lose it, you know. All right. So my uh, uh, next one is a plenary, 002. Um, I like this because uh, our fellows have done this as a one of our weekly Grand Rounds conferences, and we had a big discussion about cancer screening in patients with idiopathic inflammatory myositis. So this was uh, the first day plenary session, second talk. Um, and uh, there's a society that is very interested in myositis, and they did went through um, a Delphi process. They had, gee, I think it was 80 plus um, myositis mavens that were in, um, in the mix here. Uh, and they were trying to come to some decision about what's the approach to cancer screening in patients with inflammatory myositis. So what they did was they, um, they came up with a, sort of two things that are of note. One is stratify patients that you're seeing uh, based on their risk. They said that high risk for uh, cancer-associated myositis would be dermatomyositis, patients that have antibodies against TIF1 gamma or NXP2, those who are older, 
high disease activity, dysphagia, and cutaneous necrosis. Low disease activity actually are patients with the antisynthetase, you know, uh, Joe-1, signal recognition particle, um, you know, the um, uh, overlap myositis patients. So, and then there's an intermediate group that are the CADMs, the clinically amyopathic dermatos, um, 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 and then those who have necrotizing myositis and other uh, autoantibodies like MI2, MDA5, and the HMGCR antibodies. So then you, once you stratify them, you can figure out whether or not they deserve a basic screen, which largely is health maintenance. But they do throw in health maintenance, I mean, history, physical, labs, chest X-ray, Q-phase rectins, SPEP, urinalysis. But they do say that everybody should get myositis-specific antibodies, myositis-associated antibodies, which means they spend a lot of money. I don't do myositis antibody fishing unless I have a good reason to do so. I must say I'm interested in the newer panels that have NXP2 and MDA5. I've diagnosed a bunch of those. NXP2 has got a lot of association, not so much with cancer, but with calcinosis. Um, but anyway, they say you should do that. But then if you have, um, if you're intermediate or high, uh, and the, or if you're intermediate and the workup didn't work out, then you can go into this enhanced screening, which is CT scan of anything, you know, cervical um, uh, pap smears, um, uh, vaginal ultrasound, uh, uh, obviously mammography, PSA, CA-125, fecal, I mean, so now you're spending a lot of money. They even go so far as to say who should get, you know, who should get FDG pets. So, um, you know, that's when I got up the microphone and said, don't you think this is a little overkill? And I must say that uh, Oldroyd, who is uh, the author on this, did handle that very well. He said, this is a starting point. We know that this is probably more than you possibly need. But now with this, you know, they've drawn the line in the sand. Now people can study this, find out maybe with certain subtypes, like, you know, again, things you shouldn't be testing for, or like patients who have inclusion body myositis, don't do any testing. You know, patients who have juvenile dermatomyositis or uh, juvenile inflammatory myositis, you no, know, you don't, no need for testing and cancer assessments. But, you know, it's these other patients we see that are middle and older age, that we worry about. So I like that they drew the line of sand. I think that every division should go back and say, what are we gonna do? How are we gonna handle this? I don't think in any way that this is an endorsement for a mega workup, um, unless you wanna uh, make your institution poor. Yeah, you know, I think Will Reichlin has left us, hasn't he? Yes. Okay. This is this is like you know Mo Reichlin looking down from wherever he is or up from wherever he is and and just smiling. The idea that an antibody equals a clinical syndrome, uh, it's great for board exams. Um, it's you know it, it's good for pimping the residents, which you're not allowed to do anyway, by the way. Uh, but it's all it's hoo -ha, it's hoo ha. This is urban legend on steroids, no pun intended. Uh, the the high risk, intermediate risk, low risk. What do you do? You screen them for cancer. And some of the things in the enhanced screening, I think, are in the basic screening. You, you do mammography if it's age appropriate. You do prostate-specific antigen if it's age appropriate. You do CAT scans if you have an interest in the radiology center and you're getting a kickback from doing them. Uh, you don't radiate people for no reason. Um, I don't, And there's absolutely no data uh, that this is based upon. Uh, I think the antibodies are, are interesting. Um, I don't think that they really define clinical syndromes in most cases. The clinical syndrome defines the clinical syndrome. And you know, when when the when this gets discussed in the clinic, 
it, it's not as if the lack of any antibody is going to say, ah, don't worry about it. Don't, don't go to that colonoscopy. No, you're going to treat them to screen them because that's the, the, the only thing that there's the evidence for. And these associations, that's what Mo used to do. Uh, I saw four left-handed lupus patients and they all had uh, positive uh, SCL70. So this is now left-handed lupus syndrome. And, and then what do you do? Your next left-handed lupus patient, you look for that antibody and you find it. And then it's like, oh my gosh, this is great. And then you go to the blood bank and you find 10,000 of these who have nothing. So um, I'm sort of a curmudgeon, these myositis panels. Um, you know, remember back when the, the surgeons used to call internist hummers, remember that? Because um, they'd say, why do you call them hummers? Because you order all these tests and you get the result back and you go, hmm, doesn't do anything. Doesn't change what you do in the clinic. This is like a hummer abstract to me. And why do they also call us fleas? Last thing to leave a dead body. <laughs> All right, what do you got next? Well, are you, you going to take? A, I thought you were going to do a poll, or? Well, or? yeah, we could do a poll. I wanted to see what the, what everyone thought of the meeting. Um, so let's uh, let's take a, a time out. We got to for those of you who are on the webinar live, uh, the hundred plus or, or so, please uh, answer this poll. Um, those of you at home, you can raise your hands, however you want to raise them. So how would you rate this year's ACR 22? Um, vote now. We want to hear from all um, 197 of you. Um, it was very good, good, fair, poor, very poor. Um, what's your take on this? All right. Very good. Keep going. Uh, Jack, are you going to ask him how you like Philadelphia? Because on that drive from the convention center back to the airport, did, did I miss where Newark and Philadelphia must have had some nuclear war? Because it sure looked like a wasteland over there. Yeah, we're, we're, we may, you know, we have to be careful. We, we may have to go back to uh, Philadelphia for another meeting in the next nine years. So um, <laughs> I'm saying great cheese steaks, wonderful um, city square, um, very walkable town, but do walk fast. All and right. So this is pretty interesting. Uh, most of you felt that this was a, a, a good to very good meeting. That's about 71% uh, of you um, were quite favorable here. So we'll close the voting on this one. Let's look at the next one. Um, we're gonna share the results so all of you can see. There you go. All right, you can screenshot that if you wanna go home and show your partners what, what you found tonight. Um, we've, we've got another polling question. Um, let's see, I, I did share the results. I go back and do that. And how do I get to the, the second polling question? Hmm. Here we go. Here's a second question. I want to give this to you. For ACR 2022, what were your answers here? One, I was in Philadelphia. Two, I registered for virtual access. Three, I didn't attend. I was following room now. And four, I didn't attend. I'm learning from other sources on the internet or my neighbors, or things mailed to me by companies. How did you learn ACR this year? So a good amount of you were there. Um, looks like over a third of you were, were on site um, along with Artie and I. And uh, so uh, again, what you have to say about this is kind of uh, uh, very helpful to us in planning for next year's coverage and whatnot. So let me uh, uh, end the polling there and show you the results. 
So you can see what happened. You can see that um, a third of you were in Philly, 25% um, were virtually online, about a third were following uh, via the internet, uh, including Room Now. So that's kind of cool. All right. Just that. Uh, that's a lot that were didn't attend and um, also didn't sign up for the virtual access. I wonder, was that the cost? Uh, which could have been the cost. I mean, the numbers were down when you were, when you were on the exhibit floor. Um, it wasn't as crowded uh, as we've seen in years past. There were seven thousand people live. There was about four thousand online. Um, usually, they get about sixteen, seventeen thousand showing up, crowding that exhibit floor and those. Uh, um, but yeah, we did have some sessions, you know, that had to go to overflow rooms because they were really well attended. So um, it was a funky meeting. They, you know, yeah. as we said, the posters were were not there. They had these new ignite talks, were more like ignore talks, um, meaning no, almost no one went to see them. Um, but you know, to be fair to ACR, they had to plan this meeting a long time ago when we're still trying to figure out whether COVID's a gigantic problem or not. And um, I don't know if you've been on the airlines lately, but they ain't running so well either, you know? So uh, it's gonna take a, t a little while for uh, us to get back into the groove of, of learning. So, Artie, what's your next abstract? My next abstract is 526. And this is uh, further sub-analysis from the PEXAVAS study. So the PEXAVAS study, uh, as you remember, there were two different Questions one is, uh, uh, is plasma exchange of any value in people with severe uh, anchor-associated vasculitis? Um, the other is about steroids, and they actually convincingly showed that the, the, uh, a lower dose of steroids than many of us had traditionally used could be effective. So the, the other question was the effect of plasmapheresis. And in the original, and that was published in New England Journal in 2020, uh, the, overall it did not seem to have an effect on overall mortality or on end-stage kidney disease. Now, when uh, this was presented, I remember clearly Peter Merkel presenting this uh, and uh, a question came up about, well, what about those people with the, the diffuse alveolar hemorrhage? Uh, which is of course, um, uh, one of the things that we really fear and we hate to see in our patients. So would the plasmapheresis be uh, of any value to those patients? And they were interesting data. Um, if you look at uh, survival absolutely positively, those patients who had the severe diffuse alveolar hemorrhage did worse than um, everyone else. There was a numeric difference, but not a statistically significant difference in favor of um, plasmapheresis. So uh, the one-year mortality, for example, was 19.4% in those who got plasmapheresis and 33.3 in those who did not. Now, uh, this study had a fair number of patients. So um, you know, this is, you know, this is uh, 61 patients. So you'd say, well, you know, the, the hazard ratio was 0.45, but the confidence intervals were 0.14 to, to 1.4. So across one, so it is not statistically significant. But if you look at the curves, they did separate. And, you know, this is one of those abstracts that I think what you, how you interpret it 
depends on your viewpoint before you start interpreting it. So I've always been a plasma priestess uh, uh, believer. Um, we used to do, when I did uh, uh, immunology in Baylor, uh, we used to do the plasma priestess for all sorts of immune diseases. So I learned a bunch about it. And there are definitely instances at in which it works. There are definitely instances at in which it doesn't. Um, this, you, I think you could interpret this either way. I think you could say, well, geez, it looks like it had a little bit of an advantage in Numerically, they had 61 patients in that subgroup. But if I see somebody in the hospital with severe um, uh, ankylosing vasculitis and severe uh, alveolar hemorrhage, why not throw that in into the other uh, treatment regimens that you have? Or if you were a non-believer, you could or or a payer, you could say uh, no. There is no benefit yet again to. Uh, plasma exchange in people with ankyl-associated vasculitis. So I think you could look at this either way, um, but certainly interesting in, give, in giving food for thought. So the Pexivas was a really large study. I want to say it was like 900 or something like that, or? Seven, 704. And was there enough people with uh, alveolar hemorrhage to make this, uh, make this case? With any diffuse alveolar hemorrhage, they had... 191. Yeah. It was really the 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 curves. The, the the best data is with the severe, but there are only 61 of those. So it is. It's smaller numbers. Uh, and visually, as you look at the curves, they do seem to separate um, a little bit, and the numbers are a little bit different. So it's a it favors it, but it didn't end up statistically significant. So if you you know if you had 7,000 patients, it probably would have been statistically significant, but the effect size would have been relatively similar so um I, and i don't think we'll ever get a study like that no i mean those numbers are really big um uh and it's gonna be hard to beat that in the future what i heard and talked to a lot of people about this is if you're a vasculitis maven you're still using um the plasmapheresis uh that this was encouraging for you if you're not a vasculitis person you're looking for a vasculitis person to say what do you think uh or if you're <laughs> you know a bean counter you're saying well, there's no evidence, so we're not paying for that. So uh, I, I'm like you. I, I tend to think that this is encouraging data uh, in, a, in a complication of the disease that has a gigantically high mortality. Um, I think this is evidence enough to be in favor of uh, a plex. So that's pretty cool. All right. Uh, um, one real, uh, my next uh, abstract is a topic that's incredibly important to rheumatologists. Um, and someday I'll get on board on this, and that is um, the treatment of Sjogren's syndrome. This was a plenary session on the second day, abstract number 1113, um, speaking about remibrutinib, uh, an inhibitor of uh, Bruton's tyrosine kinase, or BTK, uh, and this was a safety and efficacy trial. Uh, it was a, had a 24-week primary endpoint it was a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial of moderate to severe uh, patients with Sjogren's syndrome. They had to have disease activity as measured by the SDI, um, the st sort of standard measure. Well, there's a new one called CRIS, right, that's um, being advocated for in Sjogren's. They had to be SSA positive in the last few months. The study, as is often the case um, when things look good, is a small phase two. Um, so... I like this because it, the design is good. I like it because it's presented by Thomas Dorner uh, of Berlin, who's a, a good friend and, and does really good science. 
Um, but the treatment regimen here was blinded to get either placebo or 100 milligrams BID or 100 milligrams once a day of this BTK inhibitor. Uh, and at the end of 24 weeks, the uh, Remy had significant improvement in SDI over placebo, that the secondary measure being how much unstimulated salivary flow, they had to have some unstimulated salivary flow to get in, so they had something to measure. Uh, and the patients who were on Remy uh, had a tendency towards improvement, although it was not significant. Um, biologically, some things improved, IgM and I, I, IgG uh, improved, but not IgA, and not surprisingly, uh, the SSB, SSA antibodies also went down with the IgG, but these were not significant. There was a decline. Things that didn't change between the groups, patient reported outcomes like the uh, ESPRI and the facet fatigue measure and the EuroQOL5, Euro um, there was no difference between the groups. And lastly, while they tested two different doses here, there were no dose, there was no dose response. And so the results of Remy's benefit is a combined dose, um, but although it was seen with, I think, one of the doses uh, as well. So is this encouraging or not? You know, my, again, I, I'll reiterate that there's really nothing that works in Sjogren's syndrome. Hydroxychloroquine, all DMRs, all biologics, nothing's been proven. Now, you're going to tell me about something a year ago and whatnot. That was also a modest size phase two. And that's been in print. I think it was in Lancet. Um, um, but we need this to go to larger studies. I'm, I would love to see um, a drug that works for the most common autoimmune condition that we treat. But as yet, I'm still a bit of a skeptic. A uh, question came in online, Jack. What kind, is this reversible or irreversible BTK inhibitor? The drug's effects? I don't know enough about the drug to talk to that. I, I would imagine it's, it's, I think it's, it's reversible. reversible. I think the, I mean, I, excuse me, I think it's irreversible. I think the reversibles have had uh, much less efficacy. And I think you really, um, you see results more with the reverse. I, I don't know. I think you see more results with the irreversible one. What about the safety uh, profile of that, Jack? It's always a concern with the BTK inhibitors, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think that they they sort of glossed over it in the paper. Uh, they gave a little more data from the podium, but the table that they showed showed no, no real differences between the groups and certainly nothing as far as infection um, or malignancies. And again, this, this cohort didn't have any malignancies related to Sjogren's syndrome, but this is, a, again, a small, subs a small cohort and a fairly short follow-up uh, being only 24 weeks. Yeah, yeah I think um, Sjogren's, is, it's still the, you know, they're still wrestling with the outcomes, like you say. And I think, you know, how many of us thought rituximab, has got, it's got to work. Just absolutely. How could it not work? And it even has a bit of a bias, as the BTK inhibitors do, in that they should result in some changes in the immunologic parameters that you think would sort of bias it toward having a response. So these data are very interesting. Um, I mean, it's a small effect size, but uh, certainly interesting. And it's supposed to work, although not everything that's supposed to work ends up working. So, um, Kathy, Chap Kathy Chapman, that's about IL-7 inhibition in Sjogren's. I have not seen a trial of that. Already of you? Uh, no. IL-7 inhibitor? Interesting. Yeah. Maybe someday. Hmm. Okay. Let's go on. All right. My next is um, a uh, 1106. And this is a, a semaphore. This is tocilizumab in patients with 
polymyalgia rheumatica failing glucocorticoid therapy. So uh, I don't I don't know. Maybe I'm just paying more attention to it. I think I'm seeing more polymyalgia lately, and uh, I am not a DMAR believer. I don't think DMARDs have any role in PMR outside of patients who also happen to have peripheral arthritis as part of their disease. This was patients who were refractory. Um, they had to have uh, uh, elevated disease activity score and be on prednisone more than 10 milligrams a day. Tocilizumab intravenously compared to placebo, and it worked. Um, the uh, primary endpoint was a decrease in the activity score for, for PMR uh, to such that it was less than 10. It had to be um, uh, greater than 10 to get in. Um, uh, or and or uh, a prednisone less than five milligram a day or greater than 10 milligram uh, decrease. Remember, they had to be on greater than 10 to get in. So data, uh, the primary endpoint, 67% TOSI versus 31% placebo. 49% of patients stopped the, the steroids with TOSI. 19% were able to with the, the placebo group. So it clearly worked. Um, I think this gives you another option now for polymyalgia, just like we've had it for giant cell arteritis. So uh, I really welcome this. I know there's other studies looking at tofacitinib in uh, uh, polymyalgia, and I think looking at the jacinibs makes sense there. Uh, and the IL-17 inhibitor, uh, secukinumab is being looked at in, in polymyalgia. And uh, I really welcome those because I think it's a very big unmet need and it seems like a big population. Now, not everybody needs a biologic. Steroids are still the mainstay of treatment, but remember, we're treating people for an average of 18 to 24 months. So that's a lot of steroids. So I'm very happy to see this kind of data. So um, last year at ACR, we saw the results of the Titan study with secukinumab in patients with GCA. Um, and that led to further speculation that would be a, a PMR study. This study in tocilizumab is, the three, is a third study that I'm aware of in a control trial design showing the efficacy of, of, of tocilizumab, the IL-6 inhibitor. And then we also had presented at this meeting the Sapphire or Sapphire S-A-P-H-Y-R study with cerilumab in refractory PMR, also showing efficacy uh, and sustained remissions and things like that. So um, yeah, this is going to get to be, you know, um, I, I don't know what, uh, how many of your rheumatologists were um, uh, the ones who complained, like, you know, we really talked about RA and all of a sudden we're only talking about PSA because there's like all these PSA drugs. And so guess what? The conversation is about to change with a whole bunch of new marketed drugs in GCA. So get ready for the onslaught. The question is, do you need it? Uh, the question is, will you use it? You know, um, I... Marty Bergman and I wrote a protocol back in 2002 about the use of adalimumab in PMR. PMR and adalimumab, that was the Prada study. Best acronym ever. <laughs> and then we sent it out for review. And we got yelled at. What are you out of your mind giving them a million dollar drug for something that you know you could treat with, you know, five cents of prednisone? And, you know, this is some of the bias that um, these companies are going to go up against if they're to introduce these therapies for the minority of patients who are refractory and who you can't get off steroids. We certainly would like that option. And I agree with you, DMARDs, I don't fit the bill here. But I think we're going to see a lot of activity um, in more clinical trials and probably regulatory approval in, 20, in 2023 and 2024. 
Yeah, I, I'm really looking forward to that. What do you got next, Jack? Uh, LO5, denosumab, as a disease-modifying drug in osteoarthritis, a D-mode. Is that possible? As you know, as everyone knows, uh, and wish it weren't true, that there is nothing that works in erosive OA. You might use, uh, uh, what's that, David? Um, you might think. Anyway, um, <laughs> you, you might use, you know, methotrexate or TNF inhibitors or DMARDs and hydroxychloroquine, but really there are plenty of clinical trials showing that DMARDs don't work, that even non-steroidals don't, don't even work. And we really don't have anything for erosive hand OA. Uh, and this is a real big problem. So researchers at Ghent, um, Wittock and colleagues um, have done a hundred patient trial using a uh, their measure of outcome being an x-ray score called a GUS score, which has to do with the Ghent um, uh, x-ray scoring system uh, with a primary endpoint of week 24. So 100 patients, half are given the uh, um, denosumab, the other half are given placebo. Uh, and at the end of the study, at 24 weeks, the primary endpoint is they had a better GUS scores or better radiographic outcomes with denosumab then placebo, very significant. Secondary endpoint was development of new erosions was more on placebo than on the patients who were on denosumab, seven versus 1.8%. Overall, there was no uh, 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 increase in adverse events of any kind, uh, but wait, there was no effect on clinical measures like, what's that thing we treat? Uh, pain. Yeah, <laughs> that didn't work. So this is a problem. We've seen some drugs in the OA space that do this, that seem to have either biologic or radiographic effects, but not affect pain. The question is, is the FDA going to approve it? Would the rheumatologist use this as add-on therapy, you know, to get um, uh, better outcomes in OA, especially erosive OA? And if it's not helping pain, then how is it affecting the x-rays, but not affecting pain? Well, I think this came up years ago, Jack, and you had that, that same question when people are talking about denosumab and rheumatoid arthritis, and the overall x-ray score got better. And I think you you know if you dig a hole in your yard uh, and it gets filled in with leaves, does that mean you're filled in your the hole in your yard? It may not. It just means that you know it doesn't look like there's a hole there anymore, and you may be seeing that with the denosumab. And I, and I think you're right. This is a very exciting abstract in one way because we have nothing for inflammatory OA, but this this is erosive OA, which I think probably most people would say is inflammatory OA. And um, you know, the it's it's sort of a solid definition. You look at other definitions of inflammatory OA. And it's, you know, what Potter Stewart said about pornography. Uh, I, I can't define it, but I know it when I see it. And that's the way it is for us in the clinic. I think we know inflammatory OA when we see it and we don't have anything for it. This, I get, you get very excited, but if it doesn't help with the pain, um, I think that's going to be a tough sell. Now, um, the other point of this, interestingly, though, is there is a generic, uh, I mean, excuse me, a biosimilar denosumab that's coming sometime. I forget when, if it's a year or two years but it's, it's presumably coming. So we may be able to use this more, but if it doesn't help with pain, I, how are you going to sell it to your patient? Yeah. Uh, Artie, why don't you go over what you um, mentioned in the meeting a few days ago about biosimilars. Usually, you know, when they first came out, we covered, we did a lot of stuff on biosimilars. It was really exciting. 
but ultimately it wasn't so exciting, you know, and they just showed that basically the same results and same PK, same side effects, yeah, yeah, yada, yada, yada sort of thing. And what's the big deal? We can't even use it since we only have a few versions of, of infliximab available. But what's the rest of the story, Ari? Well, there's going to be one biosimilar adalimumab in January, uh, presumably, and nine in July. So there will be 10 approved biosimilars for adalimumab. Uh, and then the key question is going to be, what happens to the cost? Um, in Europe, one of our colleagues we uh, met at the meeting, Moran Makari, he's the editor of Rheumatology Oxford. He said that now it's the infliximab biosimilar is one eighth the cost of the originator, a uh, thousand pounds a year, getting in the range of injectable methotrexate. And uh, what will we see here? What will we see immediately? How will things change? I can't help but believe it's it's not going to have a big impact on our treatment algorithm. You know, if you if you say, well, you know, you got to go to a TNF inhibitor first, which I think a lot of us do for many of our diseases, that isn't going to change if you if we get a, a real cost benefit from that. So we had a few comments. Um, Neil Birnbaum in San Francisco said he's had great success using plaquenil PMR uh, when he gets down the steroids. He says Actemra in his experience has a lot of side effects in the elderly. Uh, Mike, what, from what I know, I haven't seen a great clinical trial in of, of hydroxychloroquine uh, in PMR. So that is valuable experience. Maybe we should be doing uh, a more pragmatic trial by doing that, as uh, as Neil suggests. Uh, and then Marilyn Solsky wants to know: Is our insurance company going to cover this? These things we've talked about, not until it's FDA approved, and the rest is uh, you can't really get compassionate use for these sort of things. Um, maybe you got time to put in one more, Artie. Um, I got one. Do you have one? I have a, one I'll do real quick because we only have a couple of minutes, and this would yeah. be my um, mulligan because I'm. Uh, this is, is at UCSD. This is eleven. I mean, excuse me, one four one six fourteen sixteen serum bioactive lipids change with TNF and IL six treatment. Um, this used data from the Coravitas certain registry. So uh, you know we talk about registries and their strengths and limitations, but this was almost more of a clinical trial. They had patients who before and after starting a TNF inhibitor and an IL six inhibitor, and it's all about uh, metabolomics. It's about lipids, which I think is an important point. Many of us grew up thinking that lipids were sort of dumb and uh, we like proteins, we like cytokines and chemokines and they were the smart molecules and that was going to be the answer proteomics and hasn't really taught us a ton. We ignored lipids, um, although we were talking about them with non-steroidals because those do affect prostaglandins and that affects uh, changes in lipids. But in this study, um, uh, it was demonstrated that you do see some changes that are different between TNF responders and IL-6 responders using a broad array of uh, uh, bioactive lipids, looking at uh, liquid chromatography as a way to differentiate them. So metabolomics, reflecting the microbiome uh, potentially or other environmental issues, super hot topic. And I think we're gonna have to see much more about this coming. Okay, my last one is, um, can you hold methotrexate for one week instead of two weeks? If you remember, Park and colleagues, what was it, five years ago, showed that great data that if you're vaccinating patients against influenza, um, that it makes sense to, because methotrexate really impairs vaccine responses more so than any of our other drugs, ex with the exception of rituximab. And, uh, and their experiments really were very helpful in 
basically shaping how, how we use methotrexate during seasonal influenza vaccination season. They did a non-inferiority trial. This is abstract 0936 comparing one week suspension to two weeks suspension as was the previous standard. So they used the quadrivalent influenza vaccine against influenza. They looked for short and long-term effects. They enrolled 178 patients, half of whom got um, held their methotrexate for just one week after they got their, their flu vaccine. The other half held it for two weeks. Patients were on methotrexate 10 to 20 milligrams. I'm sorry, 12 to 13 milligrams. And there's about 15% or so that were taking JAK inhibitors or TNF inhibitors. The bottom line was at four weeks, um, there was an equivalent response uh, and no difference. And that's persisted out to 16 weeks. The only thing of real note here, and side effects were okay, no big deals. The, but at week four, there were more uh, RA flares by DASH 28 in the, um, the, those who held the drug for two weeks. And whereas it didn't happen, it was very low. It was only 4% in those who, of a flare rate in those who held it for one week. And those who held it for two weeks had a 12% DASH 28 flare rate. This was not a, a difference, although the same sort of trend existed out at week 16. So clearly this is pointing us as Park has guided us before, he's guiding us now to say, just hold it for one week and the patient will do fine, not flare and get the benefit from the influenza vaccine. Yeah, and often it's sort of between one and two weeks anyway, when you think about what day do they take the methotrexate, what day do they hold it, what day do they get the vaccine? So yeah, I think this is practical um, and uh, uh, good information. So. Um, before we go, let, we'll let Jack uh, sign you off and just uh, a little uh, a, a plug, RWCS coming up in February. I want to see you all there. And Room Now Live in March. And anybody who goes to Room Now Live, you have a chance to get a Jack Push t-shirt. Um, so that's, that's, that's worth coming along. Just a chance to get the Room Now Live Jack, and here's Jack saying that's a special kind of stupid. That we have all sorts of Jack quotes written on these T-shirts that Jack's office staff did for him, and uh, they'll you chance to get one if you come to Room Now Live in March. Come to Room Now Live, we'll make you cranky. Um, <laughs> so, all right, thanks for spending the evening with us. Uh, we're looking forward to ACR next year, Artie. We're going to be back in San Diego. There you are, and right. it'll look like this, like in the background there. There you go. I'd rather be in San Diego than Philly any day. All right. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. Artie, good night. Thanks, Jack.